0: Hey everybody, it's Tony Robbins. Hey guys, I'm Audrina Patcher. Hey, this is Adam Carolla. You're on the Hollywood Raw podcast. You're
1: watching Hollywood Raw. You're
0: listening to and watching.
2: Welcome to the Hollywood Raw Podcast. Today's show, uh, we talked to an author, a guy by the name of Michael Schulman. He wrote the book called Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. It's a fantastic interview that I do not just by myself. I do with my friend Dax Holt on the other side of the country. Dax, what's up? What up, buddy? How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to talk to uh, Michael because he – You know, this conversation we're going to have, there's so much there. He's just – he has so much knowledge about the Hollywood industry, about the film industry, about celebrities that, again, this book is so much fun. And you'll see why this book is so much fun after um, you hear this conversation. Yeah, we've never
0: had like an Oscar historian per se on. And I feel like I have a lot of questions. I just want to know like how much – you know, does the host get paid or what kind of drama happens behind the scenes? What it's like even going to the award show. It's so many questions that I know he has the answers to.
2: Yes. Um, are you Dax? When's the last time you went to the movies is probably, um, uh, I went, to,
0: what did we see? We saw the little mermaid, the new one. Um, Have and then I there? saw the new Jennifer Lawrence mo- uh, movie. Uh, yeah. Whatever that was called.
2: Are you planning to go see the Oppenheimer? Is that something that you're really into?
0: I mean, I would like to see Oppenheimer. I'd like to see Barbie. Everyone's talking about these two movies. They're like, you know, competing against each other. Neither one of them are kids' movies. So it's like, okay, now I got to... Find someone to watch the kids, you know, do the, the whole thing. So it might take me a little longer. I don't think I'll be there opening weekend by any means.
2: Yeah, I did hear Barbie was fantastic. I did not see it. I'll probably wait to go see Barbie. I'll wait till that comes on a streaming site. But I will see Oppenheimer. I just, the way people are talking about it, and I just think it's like such a cool film. So I do want to see that. But I keep saying I'm going to see these movies, and then I don't do it. Then I just Have you
0: ever, like, when was the last time we saw press this good for movies? Like, whatever they are doing is fueling this intense curiosity over two movies that i have never seen in my life
2: but it's funny because i always try to see what are they doing and i can't figure out what they're doing but there is so much hype around this movie especially during a weird time during the actor strike when these guys can't do press around the movie
0: Mm
2: -hmm. it's sort of unique but but it's been working on their behalf
0: but to see all the fans like competing like who's gonna who's gonna which movie's going to make more money at the box office and like you're, you're rallying the fans to essentially make your movie a hit. Like you couldn't pay for this kind of publicity. Like, I wonder if the producer just came back being like, I don't know what the hell it, it took on a life of its own. We couldn't have planned this, but it is the best thing that could have ever happened. But
2: well, if you're someone like Margot Robbie or Ryan Gosling, I got to imagine they're like, this is great. The movie comes out. We don't have to do press and it's going to do well and we get back end. I mean, I this feel is I'm, just a
0: win win. I'm happy for Margot because I feel like her last couple movies, she's gotten shit on because the movies have done bad, but I don't think she's done bad. I think that she gets the blame because either publicity was bad or whatever and they didn't promote it and no one went to go see it. And then I look at them, you know, the cover of these magazines that are just like ripping her apart. Oh, the last three movies she's done are trash. I'm like, they're not trash. They just, they didn't get press. And so they didn't do well in the box office. That's not her fault. She did. She showed up, she did her job. So I'm kind of hoping this one's a success
2: for her. I had a buddy who hung out with Margot Robbie recently. He was in Miami, a girl he knew was in Miami that they were, they were there for a bachelorette party and they, they, basically the girls had them and say, Hey, where do we go in Miami? So the eight girls came out, met with the guys for like a drink after dinner, but one girl's wearing a mask and they're like, what the hell? Why is this girl really this? Like we have to like kind of show for these girls around and show them a good time in Miami. When one girl's wearing a mask, they're like, come on, this is just, it's for Miami. It, Mm -hmm. you know, which is a very conservative state. People kind of look at that. Didn't even believe
0: in COVID while it was there. Yeah,
2: exactly. And then sure enough, after when the girl sat, she walked into the restaurant with a mask. But when she sat down, she undid the mask. And it's Margot Robbie. And he played like he didn't know her. And then when she um, did, you know, he hung out with her all night. He said she was awesome. She said very cool and she was fun. But then when she walked out of the restaurant, she put the mask on and left the restaurant. No one really knew who she was. But it's all it was just – she said super cool girl, fun, down to earth, had a good time, partied till pretty – they actually went to one of these clubs in Miami that like goes to like eight in the morning, but they went at like one in the morning when it's dead. And they're like, I don't know. They're like, they only stayed for a little bit because the club was empty at one in the morning. It doesn't get going to like six in the morning. It's one of those after hours places. But so she was super cool. And awesome. but she wears she a really mask. had like
0: a shot to superstardom and like, you don't see that very often anymore where it's just like someone gets a lot of big roles really quickly in their career and just like makes a massive name for themselves.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but before uh, we get to Michael, let's read a review. Dax, do you have a review, a review ready one for, one for us? You. Oh my
0: God, this is a lot of words. <laughs> Uh, okay, here we go. Uh, five stars is from Ludumex. It says Hollywood Raw, the spicy salsa and cool guac of podcasting. Listen, folks, if you're looking for a podcast that's more than raw, raw more raw than a vegan diet and funnier than a clown with a chainsaw then Hollywood Raw and <laughs> Hold and Adam Glenn is your jam. These two hosts are like a dynamic duo of industry entertainment industry insiders in irreverent jokesters always dishing out juicy gossip and hilarious banter that will make you laugh so hard. You'll forget you're stuck in traffic or doing chores, whether they're interviewing celebrities, paparazzi or spilling the tea on their own experiences. Adam and Dax bring the heat and the wit. They're the spicy sauce and the cool guac of podcasting, a perfect mix of flavors and will satisfy your cravings for laughter, insight and juicy stories. Don't miss out on the fun. Tune into Hollywood raw and join the party. Uh, Louisa Drex, pronounced, pronounced draw. draw. So, Lisa, Lisa, Louisa draw, Stockton, California. Wow, Louisa, that was quite the review. Louisa it almost Drafton felt like we were doing Stockton. a promo.
2: Yeah, that was great. Thank you, Louisa draw, and I love Stockton, California. It's actually kind of fun there. Uh, believe it or not, uh, but sounds I like. Stockton, California. Weird. Um, all right. <laughs> on to our guest today, Dax. Can you tell us about our guest?
0: Yeah, our guest today. His name is Michael Schumann. He is the author of the New York Best Times seller, Her Again Becoming Meryl Street. And he's a staff writer over at The New Yorker where he's contributed since 2006. His work has also appeared in New York Times, Vanity Fair, and a bunch of other publications. We are super excited to have him on to talk all about the Oscars. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. I am so excited to talk to you. Yeah. Um, your book was introduced to me by Adam. He was at, where were you at, in a bookstore,
2: Adam, in New York, I and came Barnes across and no- this book? I was at the Barnes and Noble in Union Square, and I was looking for a summer book. And there it behold, right in front of me, and like the aisle right in my eyesight, was a title that just, like, it was just the perfect title for me that I knew, like, this would be a good beach read. It's called Oscar Wars A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. It's, uh, I just love the Oscars and I don't even know why, because nowadays I don't really watch all the films, but what you do in this book is you talk about the history of the Oscars, from the good parts, the bad parts, the parts that we haven't really heard about or seen or some of the behind the scenes. So, you know, what you do in your book is what we try to do in this podcast. You humanize the Oscars and we always try to humanize Hollywood. What is your obsession with Hollywood? You know we know why we're obsessed. So how would you describe your obsession? Why you're, you're just a fan of it so much.
1: I don't know. I mean, it's like this world to try to deconstruct and figure out how it works. Um, and I, I don't know. It, it, you know, I, I grew up in New York City. I'm not a, I, you know, I, I wasn't around Hollywood. I remember, um, I, you know, I used to love the Muppet movie when I was little, and they go to Hollywood at the end, and Orson Welles gives them the standard rich and famous contract. Maybe that's how it started. <laughs> that's true that's funny no but
0: what but why the Oscars? There there's so many facets of hollywood there you know and this award show is obviously the biggest award show but why decide to write an entire book on an award show
1: well so the book kind of grew out of uh two stories i wrote for the new yorker where i'm on staff in 2017 this was the uh the year between the Oscar so white scandal in 2016 and the moonlight La La Land envelope mix up mm-hmm. envelope gate in 2017. And I was covering that year. I, I did a story for the magazine where I flew out and uh, spent time at Academy headquarters and talked to the Academy president at the time, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who was kind of weathering all the backlash they received their diversification efforts and interviewed kind of old, uh, you know, Hollywood figures like tab hunter who was really angry at the academy and it was just like this portrait of sort of hollywood dealing with this racial reckoning and against the backdrop of the 2016 election of course Uh, it was just a lot to unpack and so i did i wrote i wrote a piece about sort of the academy dealing with the aftermath of oscar so white and then i attended the oscars in person for the first time in 2017, like right after you know, as this was happening, and I was there for Envelope Gate. I was in the press room actually and heard everyone scream when they showed the the Moonlight card. <laughs> and to me, it was like this epic tale that had this incredible Hollywood twist ending. Um, that all told a sort of a sort of macro story about the changing culture, the changing times, changing movies, changing Academy, and that's sort of how the seed got planted for this book, which is not every single year of the Oscars. It's, you know, about, uh, it's a dozen chapters or so. And everyone takes a deep dive into one particular year that captures like a transition or some kind of turning point or crisis point for the industry. Did you get the slap in there? It's funny you say that because I spent four years writing the book. I turned it in right before the slap. And then I went to the Oscars again to cover them for The New Yorker. And I had not been totally happy with my ending for the book. Mm-hmm. I sort of wrote, I, I was really late with it. I kind of wrote a really fast afterward drawing my grand conclusions, but I was like, mm, I don't know. And then I go and I see I'm in the balcony for the slap. I, I watch it happen. I hear it happen. Cause you could m- more hear than see with Will Smith screaming. And then I went to the vanity fair party and I ended my night at 1230 AM Uh, The last thing I was going to do before going home and writing my coverage was uh, I went to go look at the dance floor one last time. And what did I see there? But Will Smith himself standing in the middle of the dance floor, dancing with his Oscar with this huge grin on his face. And then the DJ switches on getting jiggy with it of course his old song and he starts like rapping along to himself and dancing and has this, you know, look on his face, like he's on top of the world. And I just thought, Oh my gosh, this is such a dark, twisted, ironic, messed up image. And I immediately knew I had to write this whole thing into the book. And I I, I rewrote the whole ending of the book to sort of end on that, on that image and, and end on the slap basically, because I knew like, you can't at that point, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine the book without, Acknowledging it.
0: 100%. No, I mean, that was a, a little gift to you right there in the 12th hour. What is it like? going to the Oscars. I've been to a lot of award shows. I've been to Grammys. I've been to VMAs. I've been all these. I've never been to the Oscars. And obviously that is like the show to go to. Can you walk us through what it's like to show up? Like what's security like? What's it? What's the feeling like when you get there and then seeing all these celebrities walking around you and like the biggest
1: A-listers on the planet? Just give us a little glimpse into it. I'll tell you this. Here's what a New Yorker I am. I tried one year to walk to the Oscars because I didn't read the instruct There's a lot of instructions. First of all, <laughs> A lot of instructions. A lot of it is about like driving and parking. And I just I don't really do a lot of driving. Where were you staying? Let me let me find out where you were staying first. I have no clue. I'm not. a I, My L.A. geography is terrible. <laughs> so I, I was staying in some Airbnb somewhere. I don't know. I got an Uber. I was like, hey, drive me to the, you know, whatever they call it, the Ho- Hollywood and Highland, you know, yep. that big mall. And uh, of course, at a certain point, there were security, uh, you know, the streets were blocked off and the driver couldn't go any further. So I was like, oh, that's fine. I'll just walk. So I'm in a tux and I start walking toward the theater like an idiot (laughs) and eventually get to Hollywood Boulevard. And it's just these masses of people. I'm like in the sea of people behind a chain link fence screaming at, you know, all the limos going by into the theater on this closed off boulevard. And I was standing next to this woman who had a big sign that said, Hollywood elites eat babies. (laughs) And um, she's screaming. Every limo that comes by, she goes, Hollywood elites eat babies. And then I asked her, are you from, like, who are you with? What what brings you here? And she goes, oh, I'm just here to have a little fun. (laughs) (laughs) So then I had to walk, like, all the way around to, like, the other side of the boulevard, like, until I finally figured out a way to walk directly onto the red carpet i mean i had a pass
0: is is it like a is it like a a credential you wear around your neck is it a ticket what do they give you there's
1: a credential yeah there's a ticket there's a very fancy ticket to the governor's ball there's 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 a a credential one of the rules is that you cannot post a picture of it on social media because then people can create counterfeit ones so that's Mm -hmm. one of the rules um you have to wear black tie like men have to wear tuxedos basically. Um so there's a real dress code. So I was in a tuxedo basically eventually sort of like spill onto the red carpet from wherever I was coming from and then immediately I see a friend of mine who so who goes, "Get out of the way, Lady Gaga's coming." I was like right in front of Lady Gaga. So that's sort of what it's like. You can go from this massive humanity <laughs> that the Hollywood elites eat babies people to like being on the red carpet in front of Lady Gaga. Um and then when you're in the show, I mean in a way, it's not unlike watching at home. It's long, you know, mm-hmm. that people take bathroom breaks during the best sound category, sorry to say, <laughs> uh, sound people. And, you know, it kind of stretches on. People get a little fatigued. Um, but what, one thing that's really different about it is that you're not experiencing it through social media. So um, I kind of watch it as a live show and try to take it in and take in who's around me, who's who are my seatmates. I interview whoever I'm sitting next to. Um, and I'm not on Twitter like everyone is at home. So when something happens like the slap, like people are all trying to deconstruct it based on what they see on TV. Or for instance, that year with Lady Gaga, um, you may remember she and Bradley Cooper sang that song from the stars born and everyone at home concluded that they were clearly and evidently like madly in love. And this was their coming out as a couple. And that was what people were talking about online. And in the theater, I was just like, Oh, that was a nice performance. So I had no idea like sort of what you're very disconnected from sort of the outside world and there's lots of stuff you actually miss because you're not seeing close-ups. I couldn't see the slap in close up, so I could hear it better than I could see it because I'm very nearsighted. Did you have your phone? Are you
0: allowed to have your phone or they put them in bags and you can't have your phone during the night? No, you can have your phone.
1: I mean, yeah. I
0: mean I can Oh, I so you think, just chose not to be on Twitter or whatever.
1: I mean, you're right there looking at this You could be on Twitter <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. Interesting.
2: Oh, do they have like snacks for you guys back like in the halls if you oh yeah there's a bar so yeah so you're in this
1: big auditorium with a lot of levels and every level has a bar um so a lot of people go out to the bar especially in the middle of the show when they get bored and they just schmooze and not a lot of people are watching and they have like bags of chips or popcorn or- well is it is it an open bar or you got to pay for your booze no no it's an open bar yeah they don't make you pay cash at the oscars that's nice and then (laughs) at the end everyone takes these escalators up to the governor's ball and that's when everyone is finally like allowed to have a little bit of fun like you're at you're at a party all of a sudden um and it's everyone just mashed together like you just turn around and everyone's famous you know you just turn it's like oh there's bill murray yeah there's like who i mean there's Beyonce. It's like it, it, it's 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 so strange. And then I typically go to the Vanity Fair party as well to cover it, and that's even more. Everyone is famous. Like everyone is mega famous. And if you're not famous, like I am, you're in this minority. Like you, I feel like I'm not supposed to be here because I'm not a, a movie icon. Um, so it's very strange.
0: Do now, they... are the, are the are the celebrities approachable, or you don't? talk to them because I'm just wondering like in this situation are they like oh yeah we're, we're open to talking to people because this is all industry people or are they like you don't approach anyone because it's just it's weird
1: well I'm usually writing a story for the New Yorker about my night so I do try to talk to people um, you know like you can't just go up to Beyonce and start interviewing her and some people just don't want to chat but like for instance last year um, this past year uh, I was in the lobby in the ground floor lobby, which is sort of like the fancy, you know, like the ground floor is where, you know, the orchestra section where all the biggest stars are. And I ran into um, the guy who won. I, I saw a man with an Oscar and it was the director of Navalny who just won best uh, documentary feature mm-hmm. Uh what was his name? Daniel. And he, uh, I asked, sort of asked him for my story. Oh, can you tell me about like what it's like to be holding an Oscar? And in- instead of telling me, he asked for my notepad and he drew a sketch of me and handed mm-hmm. it back. Like he gave me That's a cool, like I was at a, a carnival or something and someone was, was doing a, you know, <laughs> a caricature of me. So I have it now. I have this, um, this portrait of me by a, an Oscar winner.
0: Did you nice. crumple it up, throw it back, and he said, I asked you a question.
2: <laughs> 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 so, I mean, and it's funny, uh, from what I have seen, because you were actually there, the Vanity Fair party actually brings in more people than the Oscars, because people just come who weren't invited to the Oscars, who might might have a project that was nominated. They just come for the Vanity Fair party. So I got to imagine – is that party, the Vanity Fair party, is that actually better than the Oscars or is the Oscars just more of an experience?
1: Kind of, yeah. It is kind of better. And it's looser. Like there's a dance floor. You actually see people dancing together. I mean, again, my Will Smith example. But yeah, I mean, they invite people just based on who's cool, who's like, who are buzzy celebrities. And, you know, it's funny. If you are nominated for one of the, you know, quote unquote minor categories, You can't even necessarily get in unless you win like you can show up like if you if you're nominated for best, you know, live action short or something and you don't win, then you kind of you may not be you're probably not invited. Um, But if you win, you can just drive up with and show your Oscar and they let you in.
2: Interesting. So this is what I've heard. Interesting. Well, what if, you know, Gaio Siri also has like an infamous party, you know, Guy Siri is Madonna's manager. He's the infamous, he knows everyone most well-connected guy in Hollywood. What's party? Well, like when you're at the Vanity Fair party, people are like, Hey, let's just stop by for 15 minutes and then let's go to Gaio Siri's party. Or what do you hear about his party?
1: Um, I've never been to it. I've been to the Elton John party, which is also a kind of perennial one. Um, that's pretty fun. And he performs. And, um, I mean, the thing is the vanity fair party is the party still, you know, there's been some talk about how like, Oh, is it still, does it still have the, the level it did from the Graydon Carter era. And I mean, everyone wants to go to it. Everyone winds up at it. So I think it's still the, it's still the A, you know, top of the A list.
0: So I know with the Vanity Fair Party, like a lot of reporters or people that work for publications, they get access, but they get limited time access um, where they can go in and they've got whatever, a a half hour to... Smooge around take photos interview and then they have to leave and they've literally have like bouncers basically like okay hey, your time's up you have to get out did you have one of those or did you have like a full however long you want to be there kind of access
1: um they gave me an arrival time which is pretty mm-hmm. much the time i need to sort of spin through the uh governor's ball and then get there anyway so and it's also really hard to get an uber oh that's another weird thing about attending the oscars to get to leave it's like when people are leaving, it is such a shit show. Like, I don't have a chauffeur car. Like, you you walk out and, like, they're already sort of ripping apart the set and the, the red carpet. And you're seeing the mall underneath sort of emerge again. It's like, you know. <laughs> 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 it's like the fantasy is fading away. We're just at a mall. And then you see every single famous person, like, waiting for their car at the same time. Um, and to get an Uber, you have to, like, walk... A few blocks away and get an uber at a gas station so i end my my time at the oscars like at a gas station waiting for an uber right? <laughs> like the line between the top of glamour and just a gas station is is nothing it's like a it's 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 paper thin um wait what, what did you ask me i totally i was forgot. just asking i
0: was asking <laughs> if you had a, a timed
1: entrance and exit oh, from yeah, 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 your yeah. party. so then they give me a time entrance and then they don't usually hustle me out Uh, I mean, there's a lot of rules. I'm not allowed to, you know, like there are people on the red carpet who are doing photography and interviews and press and stuff. Um, I am given a special pass where I can actually walk into the party and I can sort of informally talk with people. I'm not supposed to be buttonholing them and really interviewing people. And I also can't use social media or else they'll never invite me back again. So for instance, I have a video of Will Smith uh, with his Oscar singing, getting jiggy with it. I'm sure other people have released that video somewhere, but I couldn't share it. I had to just render it in prose, basically. If well,
0: you want that... to hand it to us, we can share it for you. Yeah.
2: <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'm not taking any chances because I want to get invited back. Yeah. So let me, you know, back to your book, Oscar Wars, you know, you really dive in from the, from the beginning of the Oscars to where we are today. So I'm going to start from the past. Uh, you know, you actually even go into, and I don't know, I don't want, I hope our audience is aware, of it, the movie Citizen Kane, and how Randolph Hearst had his newspapers avoid covering the film um, because he was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, he was, you know, they basically portrayed him in Citizen Kane. Does that kind of stuff happen today where the media outlets will try to avoid certain films or give them attention because, you know, again, it's it show business, that, you know, it, it is a, there is a business behind it
1: well yeah i mean not to that level probably but there are business interests underlying the oscars you know like for instance why hasn't netflix won best picture well you could say because they didn't have the right movies but they're spending a gargantuan amount every year on campaigning and yet they just can't pull it off even when they have a movie like roma like power of the dog everyone keeps thinking oh they've they've got their oscar winner well why aren't they winning perhaps it's because uh, some element of the Academy membership are people who come from the theatrical, you know, traditional theatrical model and world. And they, there's a kind of resentment of Netflix being the company that has upset that model and, you know, barely shows their movies in movie theaters. And I think that they have faced an uphill battle just as a company trying to get an inroad into the Oscars. So like stuff like that, they all factor in. It's really not a, a pure barometer of what the best movie was, which after all is made up thing. It's just, you know, there's no such thing as best picture or best actor, you know, or best cinematography. It's a bunch of people's opinions. But those opinions come from the membership who are in the industry. I mean, in terms of like a total press blackout, I can't think of anything quite like what happened with Citizen Kane. I mean, that was a movie that was a merciless sort of veiled Takedown of William Randolph Hearst, who was like, you know, imagine if there was a movie about, you know, uh, Rupert Murdoch, uh, that was a total masterpiece, but Rupert Murdoch decided not to even acknowledge any of the movie, any 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 mention of the movie, any of its its existence, ads, reviews, anything, uh, in any of his properties, any of his media properties, and in fact, went on a, t- a direct attack of the company that released it and the star and director. I mean, maybe, you know, I'm sure that m- when that movie Bombshell came out a few years ago about Fox and Roger Ailes, like Fox wasn't covering the movie. Um, it's it's awkward for them. But like this was a real it, it, a, a sort of assault on this one guy and his movie. And it really did have an impact. I mean, it—you know at one point, all of the studio heads got together and uh, Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM at the time, he was kind of the big kahuna of all the studio moguls. He had this plan that he was going to pay off RKO to have the movie destroyed. Like, no Citizen Kane. And fortunately, the president of RKO at the time uh, had the spine to say, no, we're not doing that. We're going to release the movie instead of like incinerating it but it's just so insane that that could have happened that this movie that is you know for decades been considered one of the best if not the best film of all time could have just been thrown in the you know in the in the fire <laughs> because it upset William Randolph Hearst it is crazy but and then i think back like
0: What did they expect at the same time when you're going after someone so big and so powerful? You expect the blowback. I don't think that you could get away with that today because you just, there's not such a monopoly in the entertainment and media space. You know what I'm saying? Like, I could see someone going after like Elon right now, and they would probably get a lot of blowback because Elon likes to speak up and tweet now and all of that but i don't think you can kind of like hide a movie per se like maybe back in the day i wanted to know because you've watched so many of these oscar shows going back into time where why are they not as exciting anymore like what what do what do they need to do yes the slap made you know that year exciting but what do they need to do to bring back that like true excitement of watching a broadcast
1: here's the thing people have always complained about the Oscars being too slow, too long, too boring. That isn't new. Um, You know, you read reviews of, you know, the ceremonies in the mid eighties and people are complaining about how, (laughs) what a snooze fest, the Oscars are. Um, So I think there's always been that element. That's not something that we're experiencing now for the first time. People have always sort of said, Oh my God, they got to fix it. And people are always trying to fix it. Uh, I mean, on some level it's, you know, It's a formal ceremony that, you know, has entertainment in it. It has comedy. It has, you know, sometimes musical numbers, uh, you know, like big openings, numbers, monologues. But and I think the speeches are often the best part of it because that's Mm. the spontaneous, you know, that's the real human drama where you see someone have their moment. Um, But that formula has pretty much been in place since the 50s when they started broadcasting the show on tv before that it was on radio and people still complain they said the speeches were too long i mean um i think you know my i have my personal things i'd love to see like i don't think the oscars are quite as totally broken as some critics say they are i also don't think that the ratings have anything to do with like how good the show is i think i think the decline in ratings has to do with the fact that it's it's really hard to get the entire country to watch one thing on abc on a sunday night now like that's just not the world we live in anymore um and also the movies are uh, kind of less relevant in our lives compared to where they were 30 years ago you don't have a movie like titanic that's like this world conquering hit and also the movie that's going to win best picture
0: so they also choose movies that i've never even heard of well that's the the other part like
1: yeah yeah so i mean i've been asked this question a lot like are are the oscars relevant like what's going on and I think it has to do less with the Oscars than with the movies. I mean, now you have sort of bifurcated landscape where you have movies on one side, like you know, uh, Top Gun Maverick and Marvel movies, and you know, all the movies that are coming out like right now, like you know, Mission Impossible, whatever. Um, and then on the other side of the divide, you have like Tar and Women Talking, the movies, the sort of little art house movies that are getting a lot of Oscar nominations. Like sometimes there's things from both of those sides that get nominations like this past year. Uh, You had Top Gun, you had um, Avatar 2, for instance. Um, What's not being made as much in Hollywood are the movies in the middle, the kind of mid, mid budget studio pictures. Like, you know, when you think again, think about what won best picture in the nineties, like the English patient, Forrest Gump, uh, Titanic, um, you know, movies like that aren't getting made as much. Um, just sort of like adult dramas, like comedies. Uh, those are typically the kind of movies where they, they would draw in the general public to the Oscars. And maybe there'd be like a couple little movies on the side as well that also got into the mix. And there would maybe be some like big blockbusters that got into the mix but there was a kind of like mainstream middle sort of movie and that kind of movie just isn't getting made as much anymore it's that's sort of migrated to television now if you want an adult drama you go watch you know the white lotus or succession so i think that's sort of what's at the heart of this um when the oscar list comes out every year now and people look at it and they say wait i've never heard of half mm-hmm. these movies it's not because the academy is nominating the wrong movies or they're trying to go to go out of their way to nominate uh, you know obscure movies it's because that's the the, that's the range of movies being made yeah
0: but i want to see i want to see you know tom cruise being nominated as best actor for top gun because he single-handedly brought the movie you know the movies back to life after covid and for him to get snubbed i'm like Oh, that's lame. Like, just because it's an action movie doesn't mean it shouldn't be up there and being nominated just like all the other big movies when it brought in five times as much as all the other movies combined. You know, it's
1: it's... Yeah, uh... yeah. And this is something that the Academy has struggled with because they want the ratings. They want to have big stars and big movies represented at the Oscars. You know, a few years ago, you may remember, they floated this idea that they would add a category for best popular film. And then they were kind of laughed back into the... Hedges like, you know, they just retreated Homer Simpson style because everyone (laughs) made fun of how ridiculous that was. You know, how do you separate a popular movie from just a movie? It actually, however, to be an Oscar historian nerd for a moment, it really was a throwback to the very first Academy Awards in 1929, where they actually had two top prizes one was for uh, outstanding production, and one was for best unique or artistic picture. So at the very first Oscars, and then never again after that, they had a kind of divide. Let's, we're going to honor one movie for sort of uh, production value and scale. And that was this big war movie, uh, Wings, World War I movie. And then another movie that's sort of more of an arty small movie. Um, and that was Sunrise, which was a kind of little psychodrama. So yeah, I think the Academy has wrestled with that ever since. Let me
2: ask you this again. This is going to bring you back to the Oscars when you're in the room. Who is the most powerful person in the room at the Oscars? Is it that? The, is it? Yeah. yeah, I don't. I'm just curious. Like, is there one like almost like, oh, that is that's. who? Yeah. Who is the most powerful person? I mean, not always the
1: most famous person. I mean, it's yeah. interesting. This is part of what interests me in this subject and in the book is how the Oscars are constantly rewriting sort of the the power dynamics of Hollywood. And, you know, f- for instance, in 1999, the most powerful person in the room turned out to be Harvey Weinstein, you know, who had built up his, his uh, influence and uh, his sort of Oscar prowess over the course of the 90s from this little indie company Miramax, which became a, a behemoth. And when... His movie, Shakespeare in Love, won over Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. It was a huge shock to the kind of, you know, the the powers that be that were in the auditorium. Um, And they were aghast because they thought this guy has sort of, he is just, he has campaigned his way to an Oscar. He's spent this money. He's, you know, blanketed the trades with ads. And he's sort of browbeat everyone into voting for Shakespeare in Love when the when it was sort of the consensus that this was Spielberg's year, this was Spielberg's huge war epic, that was the movie that people thought was supposed to win. And so in that moment, you have these two competing centers of power. Uh, it was LA versus New York. It was DreamWorks versus Miramax. It was Spielberg um, versus Weinstein. So that's just an example where like, you can see the power dynamic shift in sometimes uncomfortable ways through the Oscars. Can
0: I ask you who I'm going to, it's a two parter question here. Who has been your favorite host of the Oscar and who is your dream host? Someone who hasn't hosted that you think would just knock it out of the park.
1: Uh, my, the first one is a really easy one. I, you know, I, a uh, Billy Crystal. I mean, I started watching the Oscars in the early nineties when I was a kid and, you know, Lauren Michaels always says that um, people people always think the best era of SNL is whenever they started watching it as a co- as a kid, and I feel that might be true of the Oscars. Like, I just Billy Crystal just imprinted on my mind as just a great host. He would have those in- incredible medleys where he would like do a, a you know like a song for each each of the nominees, and it was so funny. It was this kind of like throwback borscht Belt humor, and um, yeah, I mean, I still go back and watch those medleys and laugh. Um, in terms of who I'd like to see, I mean, one idea is, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Billy Eichner and I feel like he has that same quality as Billy Crystal being sort of like having one foot inside the industry and one foot out. Like he can make fun of the industry, but, but not feel like he's sort of not of it as well. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, for instance, the, the infamous, uh, uh, David Letterman year, like David Letterman didn't have any sort of, any sort of warmth toward the Oscars, like he ultimately, it seemed like he just didn't care. And I think he was a little too outsider looking in. Um, Then on the opposite end, like the year of James Franco and Anne Hathaway, like they're just two movie stars, like they didn't have the sort of outsider perspective to sort of lampoon the whole thing. So I enjoyed I know, the, I, I I enjoyed like the me, Ellen times. She did really good. I thought she was pretty Yeah. Funny. Like she's another person who has like, uh, she's, she's of Hollywood, but she also is able to sort of step outside and, and make fun of it in a way that doesn't sort of turn people off. It's mm-hmm. a very tricky uh, thing. Cause we don't have a lot of people who have that skill of being like a, an MC. Yeah, for sure.
2: What about that year when James Franco and Anne Hathaway hosted? I remember, that week, they got so much heat. People were just so angry with it. And I actually didn't think it was that bad. I mean, you know, again, because it really wasn't about them. They did their thing. I didn't hate it. But did you, from working on this book, did you hear anything or learn anything about that time when they were hosting the dynamic between the two of them and what was going on before the Oscars and what happened during it?
1: uh i mean not not really you know the the structure of the book is that it doesn't again it doesn't cover every year i kind of chose one year or so for every decade and went really really deep into it so that wasn't a year that i researched for the book uh so i really i just remember it from watching it i mean what i remember is uh, james franco looking kind of catatonic like he was sleepwalking through the whole thing and um I mean, I guess Anne Hathaway was fine, but it might have been in that era when everyone decided they were annoyed by her and now she's sort of come back around. So (laughs) they just weren't the people that people wanted to see hosting the Oscars. And and again, I think it's because, you know, they're fine. They're good actors, but like they're not like entertainers in Mm -hmm. the way that a Billy Crystal or a Whoopi Goldberg or an Ellen DeGeneres are. You kind of need a comedian, I think. No,
0: uh, I mean, that makes sense. So, you know, we always talk about the Academy this, the Academy that. Who the hell is the Academy?
2: Who are they? Yeah, can you explain that? Because some people are just wondering who the Academy is. If you could define that for us. Sure. Uh, Well, the Academy,
1: first of all, it started in 1927. The first Oscars were in 1929. Um, uh, The awards had absolutely no... uh, bearing in why the Academy was founded. It was founded as this kind of League of Nations for Hollywood that would help like bring all the different crafts and disciplines together in harmony. And there's a lot to say about that that I don't need to go into about sort of the union busting that was underlying that concept. Um, But then they evolved. And as the Oscars became the most popular thing that they did, they really became known as the place that gives out the oscars of course they do a lot of other things they have grants they have a library they have a museum now um but their money comes from the academy awards from the from what they get paid by abc to uh to air the show and it's obviously the most high profile thing they do so who is it um the membership is uh, around uh 10,000 people who are uh who are invited in um because they've reached a certain level in of prominence in their fields and they have different um they have different branches there's an actor's branch which is the biggest one there's a producer's branch a director's branch you know uh cinematography so all the different kind of areas that the awards cover basically um you have a group of people who are considered you know at a certain level in in their careers that they're they're invited to be part of a Interesting. Yeah, as,
0: is, yeah as you hear so much about them and you're just like, are these normal people or are they like, you know, not normal people? Yeah. So, okay, that makes sense. They're all in the, the People
1: who work in the industry. I mean, some of them are obviously very famous people, but a lot of them are just like, you know, an animator you've never heard of who's in the branch or, mm. you know, how many sound designers can you name? Like, they're, they are normal people. They just work in a particular field in movies.
2: Again, from working on this book, you know, I'm sure there's rivalries. I'm sure there's competitiveness between the people going for these awards because it can really benefit their career. Um, Did you learn anything new or what was the most iconic rivalry that you heard about during the Oscars?
1: Um, Well, obviously, there was the Shakespeare in Love vs. Saving Private Ryan year, which I've already mentioned. That sort of gone down as the ugliest best picture fight of all time. Um, but there were some lesser-known ones that I really loved. I mean, okay, for one thing, here's one that I love. Uh, the same year as Citizen Kane, 1942, um, two the, the Best Actress category included two sisters who hated each other mm-hmm. in the same category. Uh, this is the most famous sibling rivalry in Hollywood history, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. So Joan, Fon- they had both been nominated before, uh, and lost. And then they were nominated again the same year. And these two women just, they just got on each other's nerves, like from birth, basically. <laughs> and so of course, in the press, um, it became this, that what they called the battle of the sisters. And, uh, you know, to read their recollections of, of it, you know what? So Olivia de Havilland, she's most famous for playing Melanie in Gone with the Wind. She had lost for that a couple years earlier. Joan Fontaine had uh, was a Hitchcock blonde. She was nominated for Rebecca and then lost, and then was nominated again for another Hitchcock movie, Suspicion. She was up against her sister for this movie called um, Hold Back the Dawn, which is sort of not n- not a very well remembered movie. It's fine. Um, the moment that Joan heard her name as the winner, she looked. She had. She writes about this in her memoir. She says that she looked at her sister who was saying like, get up, get up, go. And had this like flashback to every fight they had ever had. Every, every sort of like (laughs) hair pulling squabble they'd had as little girls. And, you know, like had this sort of, you know, her, her life of sibling rivalry kind of flashed before her eyes because she knew that this was just going to destroy their relationship even more. The fact that she was the first of the two to, win an Oscar
0: man! that level of petty I'm here for damn I wish this would have happened uh, you know recently because this sounds like a, an epic amazing drama to unfold on television
1: <laughs> I know sadly it was before television uh, was airing the Oscars but like I don't know people someone asked me uh, recently like uh, it was when the, the whole Andrea Riseborough controversy was happening this year. And they were like, is this the nastiest, craziest Oscar in history? And I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, like just looking at the nine decades of Oscars, so much crazier stuff has happened than Andrea Riseborough's like Instagram campaign. I mean, just think about it that, you know, that the the Battle of the Sisters was the same year as Citizen Kane. You know, and this sort of uh, the William Randolph Hearst-like vendetta against Citizen Kane, which ultimately lost all but one one of its Oscars, and at the same time, it was two and a half months after Pearl Harbor. So when Pearl Harbor happened, the Academy canceled the Oscars because they thought it would be unseemly in an era of wartime to have a big glitzy banquet, and then they uncanceled it uh, because the the government basically told them, no, it's fine. You should you should have the Oscars and some sense of normalcy. But then they told everyone, don't dress up too fancy because we don't want to look too, you know, ostentatious and, and elite. And then Hedda Hopper, who was the kind of main gossip columnist of the era, was incensed because she thought it, it would look terrible if all the women looked plain and underdressed. So she kind of was going around telling people to dress up anyway. I mean, that level, think about all the things I just had, I just said, all happened all at the same time.
0: Michael, I love you, dude. This is so fun. I love getting this like like glimpse of history that I had no idea about. And I, I think this is awesome. I you know, one other thing that when we were talking about the hosts that I forgot to ask you was do hosts get paid to host the Oscars, or is this like a just because it's such good publicity kind of like when you perform at the Super Bowl you don't get paid you they kind of like reimburse you for set items but they don't pay you do all, the hosts get paid
1: you know i'm pretty sure they get paid the, the problem is that nobody really wants to do it because they get so much criticism like the, it's just mm-hmm. sort of a no win job so um maybe they should pay people more because they've in the past couple of years they've had trouble getting people to do it because yeah. Or whoever, however, whatever you do, You're people damned. are going to complain. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, people are going to rip you apart no matter how great you do. Like, even the years that I thought the general public loved, like, again, Ellen, I bring up Ellen again because I feel like that year people really loved the pizza incident or the selfie photo that she took with all the big celebrities. And she still even got shit on for it. I'm like, people just love to hate at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. And the thing is, I love the Oscars. You know, I wrote this book because I love the Oscars. I think they're also ridiculous. Like, I love making fun of the Oscars as well. But I don't know. Like, people, so many people have asked me, like, why do we care? Why do we st- Why do we still invest in the Oscars if we're constantly disappointed by them? And it's like, because they're fun. I mean, why not? They're like a silly, ridiculous, fun thing that we do where we all talk about movies for you know, two months and argue about movies and argue about what the academy gets wrong, which is part of it, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, no one ever asks like, why do we pay attention to the Super Bowl? because it's there. it's it's a it's a part of, you know, our culture. And I think even if you are constantly frustrated with the Oscars, like being frustrated with the Oscars is part of the culture of the Oscars. Like ultimately, movies aren't supposed to be ranked. And scored like they're not sports teams, you can't there is no like objective best anything in art. But movies are meant to be discussed. And I think the Oscars give us all a platform to discuss uh, the movies that came out that year.
2: Yeah, I, I that's I, I agree with you. I was told, you know, I studied a little bit of film in college. And they're like, you know, the Oscars are made to kind of bring attention and money to the industry, to the film business, to make money for these films. And, you know, again, a lot of the films that are nominated today, you don't hear about them. I don't know what they are until the Oscars come. I'm like, what's this movie? And the movie came out seven months ago. It's just sort of weird how that kind of works out. So if you had to discuss the five craziest moments in the Oscars, what would they be? Like, I, I mean, number one's got, I mean, I don't, if you had to rank yeah. them, what would be, what would be number, starting from number five to number one, the craziest moment during the Oscars? Okay. Is it the okay. Will Smith?
1: Yeah. I want your I think the craziest thing that's ever happened in the Oscars was when Sashi and Littlefeather uh, declined Marlon Brando's Best uh, best Actor Award for The Godfather in the 70s. I mean, that was such a mind-bending moment. It's still mind-bending. Like, you know, Sashi Little Littlefeather just died, and then her sisters came out and said that she was, uh, you know, faking her Native American identity. Like, that... The the weirdness of that event is still sort of, I think, resonating. Nothing like (laughs) that had ever happened before. Someone sending like an activist in their place. And the fact that she, this, you know, Marlon Brando won. And then out came this young woman in, you know, Native, traditional Native American dress to deliver a political speech and then decline the award and then gets booed. And then that becomes a whole thing. Like it is, it's just so surreal and crazy. And I, I think even to people, to people then especially, it must've been completely mind boggling. So that's, I think number one, um, I'm not sure how, okay. Ranking. I think maybe the, the, the slap comes after that. And then maybe the envelope mix up with Moonlight mm-hmm. and Lawland. Like the, the, I mean, I really, study that that was the wild shit that was you know i I talked to most of the people involved and to break it down like everything had to go exactly wrong for that to happen yeah everything had to go exactly wrong in just the right way for the wrong envelope to wind up in uh warren Beatty's hands so that was pretty crazy uh i mean gosh what else there was i have a whole chapter about the um the opening number in 1989 the infamous uh Snow White singing with Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe, yeah. Number. I mean, that was just like this epic fiasco. Uh that was pretty weird. Um oh the, streaker the-, the streaker. the streaker, of course. Mm-hmm. The streaker of seventy four. I mean, no, that's gotta be up there. Uh that's probably number three or four.
2: What about, so, about yeah, the Holly Berry brothers? Kiss with Adrian yeah. Brody? Because I mean yeah. at that time it was fun to watch. It was like cute. But then you know, if you were to do that today, you can't do that today. It's just it's it's one of those things looking back, you're like, man, that was a ballsy thing to do on Adrian Brody's behalf to just walk up and just kiss her. But I mean, I don't know. I liked it. So Mike, I want to ask you, you know, you, you wrote a book. on Meryl street. You just wrote a book about the Oscars. What's next for you. Is there any other projects that you're like, you're planning to work on?
1: Well, I have a full-time job as a staff writer at the New Yorker. And this book was really hard to write because I was doing both jobs at once. And for now, I'm going to take a breath and just see what it's like to do the one job um, Mm -hmm. at the New Yorker. So I'm not planning another book yet, Um, but I'm working on all sorts of stuff for the New Yorker. I mean, honestly, right now, as someone who covers Hollywood, I've become a labor reporter because of the strikes. And, you know, my last couple of stories have all been about, you know, why TV writers are striking, what's going on with the actors. Um, I just wrote a story about uh, the cast of Orange is the New Black, saying that they were never truly compensated, you know, in a way that was fair, given how successful that show was for Netflix. So I have been doing things like trying to figure out how residuals work for streaming companies and the kind of underlying economics of of Hollywood. And I imagine that that's going to be my beat for at least a couple of months. Yeah. 100%. Well, wow, uh, guys.
2: Well, yeah. I this has really... been
0: so fun to have you on. I, I've I've loved this conversation. I I feel like I've learned a lot more about the Oscars than I ever knew. This has been cool. Well,
2: yes. Thank you so much. Uh, the book is called Oscar Wars: A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. And actually, it's not the only book you wrote. You know, Michael, you also wrote a book. Her again, becoming Meryl Streep. I, you're you're a big Meryl Streep guy, I'm assuming.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. I am. Yeah. Have you ever yeah. met her?
2: I have. Yeah.
1: How was didn't she in I did interview person? her for the book, but I I had met her, um, and uh, we we corresponded during the book um, a little bit. Uh, no, I I let's see. I met her once. It, it, the, I met her in 2009. I, I I wrote this short New Yorker story when she was doing a a play reading at the Public Theater with. Some of her children playing her children. This was before her kids were like on every TV show, the, the Gummer Girls. Um, it was very, it was sort of a new idea that like Meryl Streep's kids were actors, and so I met them all backstage. Um, and I just remember <laughs> Meryl Streep. Uh, they were having this little private reception, and Meryl, Meryl got all these glasses of wine, and she was passing them out to everyone. And she tried giving me a glass of wine. But I was holding my notebook and my tape recorder and my pen and I I was like, I don't have a free hand. And what she did was she just held out her palm and put a glass of wine on it and said, well, I'll be your cocktail table. Everyone (laughs) needs an end table. (laughs) And this moment of being like, wow, Meryl Streep is my cocktail table right now. That's pretty cool.
0: That's That's do you know if she she read your book?
1: I don't know if she read it. She uh, she was on NPR at some point and Terry Gross asked her, asked her what she thought of it. And she was like, she gave like six answers at once. She was like, well, you know, he's a perfectly nice man, but, um, you know, I begged him not to write the book, but it was done in good faith, but it was intrusive. Anyway, my friends all tell me he got everything wrong, uh, but I haven't read it. It was like literally six answers. So I think, I think ultimately she, you know, she's not She's very private, and she doesn't mm-hmm. love the idea, in theory, of someone writing a book about her. But in the end, I think the book I wrote was really respectful and didn't didn't change her life for the worse at all. Um, and then I wrote a she and then I wrote a piece uh, about a year later about John Cazale, the actor from like you know The Godfather and um, and the Deer Hunter and stuff, who was her first great love. Uh, and died tragically in the 70s. It's covered in the book. So I wrote a piece about him, and she wrote me this lovely email about how moved she was by that piece. So I don't know. You know, I've, it's it's complicated, and I I sort of I don't know if I would write another biography, like an unauthorized biography again. It's it's such a it's such a complicated dynamic. Um, but in the end, I, I feel like we're we're in a good place. Me and Meryl Streep.
2: That's, That's awesome. You know, actually, Michael, it's funny because Dax and I both worked at TMZ, and we know how celebrities react to us. You, all you have to say is we're TMZ, and their eyes will roll. And Some of them are actually pretty cool, but some of them kind of get turned off, and therefore they don't allow us in the room. But for you, I mean obviously you work for a very great outlet, and you've done some incredible work. How do celebrities, actors, actresses, how do they react to you when they know what you do? Are they on edge with you, or are they kind of cool with you? Do they want you on their side?
1: um i mean i uh a lot of people well let me think i mean it kind of depends on who the person is some some people think of the new yorker as the the pinnacle of something and they it really means a lot to them to be featured in it um other people have absolutely no idea and you know like for instance i did two profiles in the same year one was of jeremy strong yes, it was the sort of infamous profile of Jeremy Strong, but he had, you know, he had grown up reading The New Yorker and sort of revered it, and, like, he just threw himself into this profile. Like, he wanted me around him when I didn't even have time to, like, be around him. Like, he just, he brought me everywhere for months, and um, I think he saw a New Yorker profile as, like, almost, like, getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, which it, it isn't, but, you know, and I think the piece I wrote had a little more, sort of, cheekiness and irreverence than he expected, but the same year I, I did a profile of Wendy Williams, who had clearly just never looked at the magazine. Like she kept asking me if she was going to be on the cover. And I said, no, like the cover <laughs> of New Yorker is not, is never a photo. It's, it's like a drawing of a flower. And she would say, oh, well, my ring has a flower. You know, maybe, maybe one day I'll be uh, important enough to be on the cover of your very, you know, very fancy magazine. I was like, no, literally I I, I took a issue out of my bag and had to show her like look i promise you there's no people (laughs) there are no photos of people of anyone on the cover it's not it doesn't have to do with you so yeah i think i think people come with different associations to it but you know a lot of people you know a a, a lot of people you know really really love getting covered in the new yorker and it it means something to them so good
0: that's great Thank you, Michael. It has been a blast talking to you. Make sure you guys check out his books, Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood and Gold, Sweat and Tears, and then also uh, her again becoming Meryl Streep. And uh, yeah, I think we got to have you back on after the Oscars uh, so we can get a brief rundown of what you think of the next Oscars because clearly you are the man that knows everything about the Oscars and how they stack up, how they compare. So it'd be really fun to have you back on after, you know, in whatever, February or whenever the Oscars are again.
1: Whenever you want, me. This was uh this was a real pleasure. Awesome. Thanks, Michael. buddy.
2: That was uh I enjoyed that conversation. It's funny, you know, when I was at TMZ, mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, obviously everyone wants the celebrity interviews, but I always like to ask the people who actually do the interviews. I'm always curious to those people. I always like talking to Gail King. I always like talking to um, you know, a Katie Kirk type people. I found those people to be sometimes more interesting than the celebrity themselves. And here's a guy who just has a really good um, eye on the industry, especially the Oscars, which are just so iconic. And he did his homework in this book called Oscar Wars that, you know, I love movies and it just, it brought me back to why, how much I just love the industry. It's just fun.
0: It's I fun. like I like learning things that I've never heard about like his stories about the two sisters, to me, that's like gold for me, because I I like hearing the drama. I like hearing stories that, you know, existed that are real factual things, but happened so long ago that no one talks about them anymore. You know, they've kind of like gone into, you know, I, I don't know how to do they've gone into the wind because, you know, no one references them. So it's fun to hear that kind of stuff. And clearly, the guy is a bank of Oscar knowledge, like just knows everything. So yeah, that'd be really fun. We need to remember. I'm so bad at Robert remembering this stuff, but we need to remember to have him back after the Oscars and just, you know, go over it and talk about what he thought of uh, the next one.
2: Yeah. uh, The book is called Oscar Wars, a history of Hollywood in gold sweat and tears. If you're looking for a good summer reading book, a good beach book, a good pool book, I, I, I think it's a really a lot of fun. Uh, thank you guys. If you're watching on YouTube, like, and subscribe. If you uh, if you want to join our Facebook group off the record, I would suggest you do it. It's a really fun community. We're also on TikTok, Instagram. We're on it all. That's right. We're social media kids. Uh, follow me at, at Adam Glennfall, Dax Holt at Dax Holt. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.
0: A at Media Production.